Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm not going to act like we didn't just talk for 10 minutes off air. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Deborah. how are you doing? I'm doing well, Robbie. Lovely to see you again, and thank you for asking me back. I wanted to talk a little bit more in depth about some of your work, and one of the things that we never really got to fully talk about last time was the bonus features on DVDs. I don't know if that if it's just strictly American cinema or if this is like this for any other country that does bonus features. But what can you explain to me exactly what you wrote about about the bonus features on DVDs? Sure, it was a while ago, but um, I'll give it a go. So I think one of the interesting things about what DVD did was it enabled a different kind of interaction with audiences. One of which was the creation of these bonus features, these documentaries, the making of, etc. We take all of this so for granted today because there's so much of this information out there. But when DVDs first came around, I mean, uh, previously you could only really get that information if you were a film buff and you were looking at um, film magazines and interviews with directors, etc. So it opened up almost a new kind of documentary making. And one of the things that interested me was just the way these extra features particularly the making ofs, positioned the films. And by positioned, I mean, invited us to understand the films. And a lot of what I was seeing was that very often they were talking about the films as history, as a form of historiography, of filmmaking as the writing of history. And because they were doing that, they were positioning filmmakers as historians and um, not just the film, not just the directors, but kind of everyone. So the actors suddenly become experts because they've spent 10, 10 days in boot camp. Suddenly they, they talk as soldiers. The directors suddenly become experts on this period of history. So we see that with Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks with Saving Private Ryan. Suddenly Tom Hanks is an expert in World War II. So I think there's a lot that interests me there in terms of, I, I think it loosens the hold that traditional history has on history with a capital H. And it reminds us that all forms of representation, that history is always a form of representation and that other forms of representation like films can also be a form of history writing. So that was what I was interested in exploring was how they how they ask us to understand um, films of World War II and, and other war films. Do you think it has more impact than obviously maybe what a history book would have or a textbook would have? I mean, the kind of parallels have shifted a little bit with my generation and probably newer generations and us entering the digital age where I feel like movies are probably going to have the most exposure. And so what the public's perception of what a certain battle or a certain what, whatever film is compared to, I mean, people can go and look at the historical accuracies in a textbook and read it however historically accurate it is. It is still you know written by the winner, but you got to examine it through how many people would read versus how many people would actually go see the film. And do you think that they should include all the accuracies in the bonus features or just have it in the main film? That's a Hollywood likes to Hollywood things up, you know, the way they love to do. So you really have to look at like, do we accept that in the original film if we're talking about like a documentary style or just a film? Most people look at a war film as this is what actually was happening compared to, oh, it's just a film. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a danger. Um, 
but I think other things happen. I think firstly, I think thinking of history with a capital H is dangerous. And I, I, I think we should shake that up. I'm all for shaking that up. I don't think only academics should be able to speak for the past. Having said that though, I think you're right. There is a danger that some people, that is the only interaction with that particular event that they will have is through a film. And one of the things that might do is it might prompt them to explore that event further. They might, and I've seen evidence of this in my research, they might then go out and do some reading through what we think of as proper history. Or they might not, they might just walk away and go, oh yeah, um, what happened in Somalia was represented in Black Hawk Down and that's cracking, that's the history of what happened. So that's dangerous, right? Because you are then getting a version of the past that is being packaged in a particular way because of complex reasons, including what the film industry does and what it wants. But I do think, and recently this is something I've been exploring in my work elsewhere, I think emotion really has a place in understanding war. And I think that film can certainly get to perhaps not factual accuracy, but it can certainly convey some kind of emotional truth of the experience of war. So if you think of something like Saving Private Ryan, yes, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a film that presents, a, presents World War II through the lens of an American understanding of that conflict. But at the same time that famous uh, landing sequence, the Normandy landing sequence, also really generates a powerful emotional impact about, that just gives you a glimpse of what it might be like to be in that situation landing on the beach. And I think that's, that's as important as the factual stuff. I think we need to reinstate emotion into our understanding of war, because without it, we have an incomplete picture of it. Would you respect a film more if it showed a balanced perspective? I have not really seen a whole lot of films kind of show things from the other perspective. I've only learned to do that through conversations on my show. And I think it's pretty interesting because I talked to a guy who happened to interview someone. And while he was interviewing this guy, I forgot his name. It's a foreign name, but he said something. He goes, when's the last time you were in America? And he goes, last time I was in America was Pearl Harbor. And he was on one of the boats that were coming over here to bomb us. And it's like, you don't ever hear that experience. And I get goosebumps even saying that, but it's like, this guy has a whole other perspective to show you. And then he kind of shows a different side of history through their lens and what they were going through. And you kind of come out like nobody's a winner in this. And you can have that from the start as well too, but you really develop what I would say more of a balance, but I haven't seen a film show that before that showed like people storming the beaches of Normandy while at the same time, the people and what conversations were going on as the people. And it's hard because just like are you saying that you're defending those people it's like that's not it at all i'm just saying when you leave a film do you want the people to be charged up with anger and hate towards another country or do you want people to feel a sense of pride and bravery in the people that lost their lives to give their life for our right to live as americans or whatever you want to say in that aspect and i think it changes the context of things and looking through media i'm sure you see this a little slight adjustment on one thing can really shift a perspective and that leaves people. Sometimes it's the beginning, sometimes it's the end, but it's such a sensitive thing where I go, I mean, I, it leads me open to a whole thing of questions, but I'll, I'll give the floor to you real quick in case you had anything you wanted to chime in on. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. So there are some films that do this, particularly films of um, the Pacific War, interestingly enough. And that dates back to before um, Eastwood's Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. So I don't know if you know about those two films, but they present the same battle, one from the American perspective and one supposedly from the Japanese perspective, although it is still quite an Americanized version of that Japanese history. But the two films work together really well to uh, create, uh, and in fact, I didn't like Flags of Our Fathers until I saw Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, and they do create, a just of that moment, they create a kind of different perspective where you're seeing the landing on Iwo Jima from the American perspective, and then in flags of our in letters from Iwo Jima, you see the same events from the Japanese perspective. And I think Eastwood did something really special there. Um, I'm currently working on an article on the films of Midway. So Midway, um, the Roland Emmerich film, came out in 2019, and it does present both the Japanese and the American perspectives of the Battle of Midway. Um, the difficulty becomes, though, when you start moving into more current wars, and even Midway was critiqued for um, its acknowledgement of the suffering of the Japanese. And rightly so, to a degree, it's saying the Japanese are the aggressors, they created the situation, why are we honoring them in the discussion of this film? But when you come to more current conflicts, I think that question becomes really tricky because it there's something about temporal distance. There's something about the further away it is in the past, the more likely we are to go, hey, okay, we can also understand the complexities of the Japanese situation and the fact that they were also being told things by their government and coming into this war in a particular way. That's kind of e easier to do than say, all right, let's have a look at the Taliban in Afghanistan and think about their perspective. So if you're going to make a war film about Afghanistan, you then have to think about, well, is it right to create a balanced perspective here of um, an organization that whose ideologies are very much um, at war with Western ideologies or American ideologies? So then you start to get into tricky, tricky ground. Um, so I think balance is difficult. It's it's really difficult to do. I think I think the most we can hope for is an acknowledgement that we're all human, and that there are human beings involved in these conflicts that are there for very complex reasons often and they are suffering and dying because of those complex reasons. I don't think that answered your question neatly, but I don't think there is a neat answer to balance. Yeah, do you, I mean, do you think that it's changing with my generation and other generations that are coming up? Do you think that if there's more recent stuff being focused on, that they have a different perspective or dip, different reception? The only reason I think that the past ones are, I guess, held with less um, focus from my generation and others is because they're not attached to it as much as maybe someone who lived and experienced it. Like my grandparents would care about World War II or any of those types of things that might have been in their lifetime. Um, 
but not my generation. We see something and we don't really think to question. We kind of just look and go on forward. But then you see the reception with Oliver Stone's new film about Putin. I mean, even I'm like, all right, okay, I don't want to, I don't even want to look at that yet. But that's a lot of kids are like probably have a different perspective or they're very mad at the director for what he was able to create. And he's gotten crap before about other things as well, too. But there's more of a recent trauma scarring thing. It would be like making a 9-11 documentary the year after 9-11 and then say everything was a lie. You don't do that then at all. That's a bad taste. You're going to get a lot of crap for that. But I don't know. I mean, the... um, I can't stop looking at the propaganda aspects of things. And I go, if this is going to be the new way that we learn history, how do we start mediating the way that we're going to learn it? And what I mean by that is, I mean, give us the full scoop and potatoes. You know, I don't want to say like, I only want to see what I'm going to enjoy. I want to see everything, the nitty gritty, the bad stuff that had to happen and the things that we had to do. You know, I don't think war is ever fun for anybody, but if you're going to put it into a movie and try and sell it to people, you might as well capture the gravity at least the realistic aspects to it yeah i agree and i actually think i think in some ways well first of all i think it's slightly dangerous to kind of generalize about how an entire generation responds to things but certainly what i see in my students who are of your generation um and perhaps i'm seeing a and I'm acutely aware that I'm seeing a very kind of privileged group of people, because regardless of their backgrounds, they are in a position where they have access to higher education, and not everyone has that. But certainly what I see is is an inquisitiveness, and exactly what you're demonstrating right right now and right here, this, this desire to talk through things, to interrogate things, that's so important. And I, I think, I think, that this is something that is emerging in younger generations because of the acute awareness that a lot of the structures of the world, including the structures that lead to war, have put us in a in a terrible situation where we're now facing acute issues in terms of, of climate. So I think there is a sense that there is a lot more challenging of those established narratives than perhaps they used to be in other generations. Do you think like when it comes to historical accuracy in films, do you think that the government should be transparent with maybe documents or something that could help out? This question comes from because Stanley Kubrick had gotten plans to see the original NASA moon mission. Um, to help influence one of his films. Uh, just looking at it, he was just looking at the plans and being able to... So uh, using actual documents and data to get a more historically accurate depiction in his film that a lot of people are going to end up knowing a lot about the Apollo missions from movies or something of that sort. I just wonder with that, how many documents we have that could really shed light into a situation? Would the government be open about that? I mean, everyone wants to check in these agencies and the government's happy to check out their reputation, uh, make sure that it comes out nice, squeaky clean, or at least not the most damaged. But I look about like, what about opening up archives for people to be able to maybe pull inspiration, but get a lot of truth in the historical context that could, because it is memory. My generation, all I remember is war films. Um, when it comes to actually learning about the war, I know some things that I learned through the show, obviously, but my education system uh, didn't 
impacted enough into my head, maybe because I just wasn't interested at the time. But a lot of people get it from Lone Survivor. I, I was thinking this guy fell down a mountain for 10 <laughs> days. Uh, it was all in the same day. So, you know, you, you get you, you get a bunch of different feelings from it. And we'll, we'll get on to the emotion parts I have some questions about for you. But what about government open transparency for historical documents and data, even some stuff that could be remain secret. I mean, they publish MK Ultra stuff and all that, but they don't popularize it. They're not like pointing you to their, you know, recent releases. They're kind of just posting it and not really telling anybody about it, which I wonder if the government was open about giving proper documentation to certain agencies, or would that just be something that would it really wouldn't benefit them? I mean, besides getting transparency for the American public. I'm going to, I mean, you'll have to bear with me here because most of my knowledge about this is about the UK context, not the US context. So the UK context, the initial, um, the initial laws around uh, access to government archives and government material was that um, initially all government paperwork had to stay um, out of the public I for 50 years. That then later dropped to 30 and now it's 20. So everything from government, from all government institutions, including the British Army, all of those records cycle into the public domain through the National Archives after a period of 20 years. And this is partially for security reasons, and not all of it will necessarily make it into the archives. There, were, there are various decisions, um, and I have a colleague who's written um, about this whole process really uh, clearly. There are various decisions at various points about what goes into the archive, what gets destroyed, and what gets held back. Those decisions can be problematic, and not just for the reasons you're thinking, because governments are trying to protect their secrets, but also sometimes because the people involved in the processes involved in this are a kind of ad hoc and arbitrary in ways. So the idea of records coming into public into the public domain again is a complicated one. Um, when you're talking about war, for example, um, the US Army hasn't been great at keeping up to date with its operational reports. So operational reports are the reports that military units make about activities, and they're meant to be there to help historians, but also to help the army learn from, as an institution, from their experiences. So by not keeping up with those records, those records get lost. They, they don't make, they, they don't exist in some cases. They get destroyed in some cases. There are um, equipment failures in others that lead to the, record, the records being destroyed. So basically, you've got a really messy kind of clump of information that some of it's missing, some of it isn't. It's not as simple as saying, right, the government must release everything. So that information in the public domain is then available to filmmakers, to everyone, if you want to research that. But it's governed by rules that are particular to each country for various reasons. And it's also governed by the very practices of archiving and record keeping, which sound really boring when you think about them in comparison to film, but actually they're crucial for preserving what you were talking about in terms of thinking about memory, 
preserving the information of an event that has happened in a particular way through um, through official channels rather than letting that institutional memory slip away. What do you think is the main memory part that people take away from a film about war? Do you think they're taking away like the action, the fighting, or you, is it the emotion that they feel from it? They have to feel a certain way to really receive something. I feel like if I am mad at a film, which I'm never really mad, I always think, well, this is someone's work or something. But if it captures, like Lone Survivor did, really pump me up to go join a local recruitment station, hence the haircut. Oh, um, God. Okay. But uh, <laughs> no, but uh, there's sadness. I mean, a lot of things. Pearl Harbor, I think, makes everybody tear up at a certain point. And um, that really makes you remember that film. Mostly it's three hours long, it feels like. So that make you remember it too. Uh, but the emotion part is a big aspect to it where I'm like, you could maybe get some historical accuracies and some not, but the way that a director pitches it. So I'm curious what you think the memory aspect of what the initial thing is that people pull out of it. Do you think they actually pull out the information or how it just makes them feel? I think that's, I think the feeling thing is so important, right? Because that's my own experience. I'll remember things from films if I've been particularly moved by them in some way, if I've, if I've responded to them on some emotional level. And I, I, there's that, I can't remember who said it, but that lovely saying about teaching that people will remember, people won't remember what you say, but they will remember how you make them feel. And I think it's the same for movies. They won't necessarily remember that historical accuracy, but they will remember how that particular thing made them feel. I think, I think we should do studies on this. I think maybe there needs to be some kind of article, thank you for the idea, on what we remember from films, what, what actually gets remembered, what we walk away with and remember. But without that, I can only talk from my own experience. And from what you've said, it's probably the same for you, that you remember the bits that you respond to rather than perhaps the date on which such and such occurred or who was there. You remember the emotion that it gives you. Do you think that if you took what was based in the history books from 1900s to today compared to whatever films we have from the however at whenever it started the 20s you date it back to the 20s to today do you think both those timelines would match up and both give the same exact depiction or same basis of a depiction of what the history might be like because there's early 20 films and 30 films maybe to the 50s you're getting a lot of communism scare crap so i don't know what the history <laughs> books were saying back then but well they're <laughs> They're doing different things, aren't they? The history books aren't necessarily about, and this is one of the things that inter interests me, is that we feel that we need to excise emotion, cut out emotion from history, from written history. And film steps in and does presents, a, gives us a different understanding. So they're, they're doing different things. And one of the things that fascinates me is how they, they work in parallel, not necessarily in the example you've just given, but for me, I've I've just finished a book on operational reporting in the British Army. And just looking at the events of the First World War, for example, and the way they were written about in official records, and the way, say, a film like 1918, 1917, what? 1917. That World War I film, the way 
1917, the way 1917 was all about emotion and how yet in official records, all of that, the people who write those records are doing their utmost to cut that out. So you've got this real emotional account of what it's like to be on the front line. And you've got people who are actually on the front line trying to cut all of that emotion out. So to me, there's a disconnect there. And it, it's a it's it's a profound disconnect because it means that by cutting out emotion in our histories and our official records, we are rationalizing warfare. And I think that's really dangerous. We're saying, yes, we can control this. We can understand this. We can predict the way war is going to happen. And to what me, a, that's a terrible thing. What about a required thing for soldiers to write down diaries or have diaries that, that would add more emotional context to maybe a certain situation or event. I mean, you're, if you read a document, it's like reading, it's legal speak basically for me over here. But if you read a diary, I mean, a lot of my information for unit 731 about the Japan's secret biological weapons team comes from journals of people that were involved in those camps. And I could tell you, I got a pretty emotional situation going on that I could depict for you with that. But I don't see any really films even really about Unit 731. There might be a couple out there, but you look at it from a reading a diary standpoint from someone who's experiencing that. I would say that requirement for soldiers, I mean, maybe not a requirement, but you know, don't shame the opportunity for the longest time. I think my grandpa, he remember telling me a story about him being, I think it was in 100% sure it was Vietnam. He's not older than that. I'm trying to remember which war. He gave me so many stories, but that he he wrote a diary and he, his sergeant took it ripped it up and threw it and like just got rid of it so he was doing it so he could send it back home like letters if he was going to do letters or something like that so i'm just curious i'm like my grandpa thought a lot of things but he was kind of taught to push down his emotions so i wonder if he had soldiers you know people that are on the lines now that keep a little diary i mean now everything's on social media but I, even then they have limits on posting but you could really pull a different experience of a soldier's thoughts of questioning why they're over here in the first place, or even talking about certain things like a next trip that's going out the next day and the fear that has to be going there. That would add huge layers for a historical documentary or film or something of that sort. For sure. I think what you're touching on there is almost, again, this is something I've, I'm interested in, is the way in which institutions like armies deal with emotion. And historically, they haven't dealt with it very well. They particular, particularly the emotion of fear, which if you think about it, that's insane, right? Because actually you should be acknowledging the fact that going in and risking your life is going to be a fearful situation. But the British Army in particular tries to kind of, um, it, it, it's becoming only recently better at kind of acknowledging that it actually does need to think about soldiers' emotional reactions. But Historically, armies have not been great at that. It's just been like, well, suck it up and get on with it. And if you do suffer trauma, this is why the language we use around trauma is so fraught. So even terms like post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, something that only emerges after the Vietnam War, it's quite a contentious term. The language, we struggle to find the language around what war does in terms of trauma. We, we we call it PCSD, but that's different from something like shell shock. And it, so you've got all these terms kind of floating around. So I think 
it's not so much that soldiers should be taught to keep diaries, but maybe that emotional intelligence should become part of the way soldiers are trained. And I, I think there is a movement towards that now, but kind of acknowledging the emotional, and there is, there's a move in, in studies of war as well, to acknowledge the role that emotion plays, because it's emotion that governs our decision-making process. And it, although we think we can separate rational, from, rational thought from emotion, we can't. That's a false binary. So locating emotion is important. The cutting out of emotion, I think, is done for um, perception purposes, not only for the American people, which I think not even the American people just but for the own country's people. There's a big solidification of this is the idea I want you to see as us. We are strong. We are this. And then there's the perception to the other country as well, too. So there's a reason for it. But I start asking what kind of the balance is in that, because I see more of it affecting its own people than affecting another country's perception of us. You know, they have their own views and they have their own films that depict us a certain way. But there's a lot of like depictions I remember when I was a kid watching films of the Marines as like these foam at the mouth type, you know, these type of soldiers. And I'm like, I know plenty of Marines. I could tell you, no, they're not. I've seen people do things in their worst moments that they probably don't want filmed or anything like that, but I have it. So if you, you kind of get a different depiction. I don't think it's a generational thing. I just think it was on, it was intended that way. And then I start going into the propaganda again. Is it propaganda for the right reasons as a defense issue, or are you doing it to solidify your own image and your own justifications for your own actions? And I mean, that boils into a little bit of discussion of Vietnam war and the number of, I mean, there was a lot of people that really, couldn't care if we were in Vietnam. And then the number of activists that started speaking out, it started to become this whole counterculture movement. But you get into the whole basis of it. It's like, do we remember just hippies? Or do we remember the number of people that were openly protesting and doing uh, sit-ins at college campuses and the police were going in there and disrupting those? Like, So there's a real thing for me where I'm like, man, let's start making some films. Somebody tossed me a billion dollars. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, I mean, you've hit on the you've hit the head on you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to propaganda. Because propaganda is not about changing people's minds in a lot of ways. Propaganda is very often just about reinforcing, um, nudging people towards uh, a particular ideological stance that they already feel comfortable with. So it's it's not about going in and converting someone who believes in communism in the Vietnam period to capitalism or vice versa. It's about actually saying to the people that you're um, talking to that, yes, your beliefs are fine and right, and we're doing the right thing. We're the good guys. Do you think that a film has a better reception or do you think television series have a better reception? The reason I ask that is because there's the Watergate plumbers that came out and, um, I've I haven't seen in, that yet. But. I have looked into a lot of Nixon, uh, and I have to say that if you're pulling one thing out of Watergate, everyone thinks Nixon. And I go, he ain't the only bad apple in that bunch. But the fact that we only remember him is a real big that's a, that's a big media thing right there. It's, I'll use another example. It's a terrible one, but I'll use it. When you hear like the Manson murders, it's like Manson didn't kill anybody, but if you title it Manson murders, 
everyone's yeah nobody bats an eye and they move forward i go it's just your way of manipulating language i mean it's not it's smart it's very smart but i kind of look at this as a lot of things now when i start diving into the real history of like the 70s and the 60s i'm like okay hold on a minute i just was taught in school it was nixon and that was it and we were on to the next subject and i'm looking through i'm like everyone here should have their own little like excerpt in this book or history book yeah, for sure. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, that question of is film the most, I, I can't answer that question of whether film is the most powerful or television is. I actually think we, it, the question, nobody just watches films, right? Nobody just watches television or just plays video games. I, I'm interested in the way they all combine together and create a sense of, an understanding of a particular conflict or of conflict in general. I, I think trying to pull out, and in a way, I think I certainly see in my students that that idea of what we call medium specificity, which is the particular capacities of a particular medium to work in a particular way. I think that's been eroded because, you know, my students don't necessarily think of a difference between a television series and a film. Obviously, there are differences there, but they are watching them on their laptops, they're watching them on television, they're watching them. So all of that kind of convergence of media has certainly blurred all of media specificity in a number of ways. But I think I think it's a combination of things, things like the, the way video games might interact with film, the way film might, might complement and interact television. I think they all work together. I don't think we can separate them out and say this one's more powerful than that one. Do your students talk a lot more about video games than they do with videos or films or TV series? Because I'm really interested in the impact of a video game when it comes to, you put it in a first person perspective. Yeah. That's like you're there, man. Like I, I have a I have a big TV, so if I sit right up close to it, I, it's like virtual reality to me. My vision goes down, but it's it's like I'm there. So the memory of it is, I mean, for me, when I look at that, I, I know all my friends play Call of Duty or play some type of game. I kind of cut the video game stuff out. I like a nice farming game, something simple. I don't have to worry about <laughs> people's lives at risk or anything. Um but uh, I just am curious from your students' perspective, do you most commonly get questions about video games and do, are they mostly involved in that? And what are the thoughts on the first person perspective being a real trigger of memory or something that could really last an impact? I mean, I think it numbs us a little bit too. You know, people start firing a gun in modern warfare and then they go out to the field and try and fire a gun. It's a bit of a different horse that they're 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 playing with there. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. Yeah, and that's actually one of the questions I ask when, because we do some weeks on video games, I'll ask my students whether they've actually ever fired a real real gun. Um, probably fewer, I'm making an assumption here, but probably fewer here have done that than perhaps in the States, because we don't quite have the same gun, gun culture in the UK. But generally, there, there will be people who have fired guns and will go, no, it's completely different. Of course, it's different. So I think... There is still, I think some of them are still surprised that we can consider video games a subject of serious study. Um, and particularly first person shooters like Call of Duty and uh, Medal of Honor. So the first person perspective, I think, is fascinating because it, it, gamers talk about not um, 
again, I'm falling back on Saving Private Ryan, but you'll go, Miller ran up the beach and he experiences this and you see Miller on the beach in shock. Um, but if you play Call of Duty, you're saying, oh, I ran up the beach and I got stuck behind that that metal hedgehog and I didn't. I had to try seven times before I actually got to scale the whatever. So you're talking in the first person, right? And I think there's something really intriguing about that because, and I've said this elsewhere, but video games effectively remove the figure of the suffering, traumatized soldier from the narrative. And instead, all you're dealing with is the weaponry, the, the, the experience of conflict. So I think video games do, they play a really important role for me because they counter that trauma narrative. And we tend to forget that war has appeals, right? You just saw um, Lone Survivor and you want to rush off and join um, the Marine. It's not the Marines. They're not the Marines. Are they Navy Marines? SEALs. The Navy SEALs, of course. You want to rush off and join the SEALs. So we forget that there's an appeal there, right? There's war has an appeal, and veterans have written about this throughout history. They've, and again, when we talk about emotion, it's not necessarily about fear and trauma. It's also about joy, you know, that fierce exhilaration that that soldiers get in killing, in surviving, in in the madness of the moment. There's a, that mad rush that war gives, and games remind us that that's what conflict does, and I think that's really important. So some of my students struggle with that. They they will I will have I don't want to gender this because you know lots of of girls and women, including myself, play Call of Duty. But a lot of the time I will have students saying, I've never liked shooting games. I I don't I, I don't understand why they're important. And the minute we start to play, because we do play them together on a massive screen. So we have a gaming session with snacks. The minute they start to play, students will suddenly be going, oh my God, I hit him in the head. And you've got that excited, that switch into an excitement. And that's, that's the thing that video games do differently, is that element of play. And there's a long history between play and war. Uh, 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 in fact, as, for as long as war has been around, it's been associated with ideas of play and games. So you've got a different perspective into war that video games offer you that I think is so, so important. So yes, it might not necessarily te teach you necessarily about the big picture of why the wars are happening, although in some instances, obviously they do, some games do, but I think it does give you a powerful insight into, Again, a smidgen of what it's like to run up those beaches when you've got uh, against a massive barrage of artillery fire. And I think, I think that's valuable. I think it helps understand what people go through from a more like, not really, you don't get the impact or the emotional impact, but you understand what people had to go through. If you have to like jump out of an airplane or something like that, depending on that, there's probably plenty of people that have done that. I had a buddy that was on here who does that for a living for the military, just jumps out of airplanes all day, which sounds like a fear for me. Um <laughs> But I go, I mean, the number of guns that people know and can name off the sound yeah. of the M1 yeah, yeah, Grand yeah. that is now synonymous with that loud ting that comes off. It's, it's yeah. used so much in a video <laughs> game, uh, certain guns that were used. And I think it just, I don't know if it creates more of an impact generationally in a bad way. 
because of the the, uh, the lack of emotion, you know, the quick shooting somebody in the head and the shooting like that. And then they go, this is awesome. But also, I don't know what doesn't feed the war machine to be 100% honest with you. I mean, if you really think about why a lot of people join the Marines or a certain branches because of the stereotype behind the branch or oh, the Marines are the low guys on the totem pole, but they're the ones down and dirty and these tough people. Everyone wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Um, just because they were the elite bunch of the bunch. If you're a guy or if you're someone that cares so much about, you know, being cool in front of everybody, it was the main thing to try and join the SEALs. My buddy went to the Air Force because they were talked about being these star-studded cast of like 90% IQ or 90% percentile of grades. and any, So it's like he did that, got a whole career from it, and I'm smarter than he is. So it's like, I didn't do that. <laughs> So you got, you know, you get this aspect of things of like, do people care more about what they're actually intended to do? Or do they care more about the perceptions of themselves, much like the government and everyone cares about the perception of themselves? I mean, it's a complicated thing. I'm interested in the UK's version because you guys kept your documents secret for a while. I don't know why that changed, but that's interesting to me because I'm like, oh, what you guys must be learning over there now. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge uh, question open to debate because... The records of the Falklands War are now becoming available in the National Archives, and that is creating some stir and some controversy. Everything creates controversy. That's why it sells. It does. Yeah, indeed. Exactly right. Exactly right. I wanted to ask you about uh, media reporting. Do you think, I mean, we talked about media reporting last time, but did you notice that a lot of it started to come from the truth? But then it just became having it first, which I think is a problem. And I know we can talk about historical as it relates, but I don't know when that shift started to happen. I know people always mention the 24-hour news cycle and things of that sort, but I have to think that it really started a little bit sooner than that. I think it had media had – we talked about the Vietnam girl. and I have the crop photo where it shows you a different – it shifts the perspective. But that's where it's it, – Earlier than that, it could have been where it started. When you're changing perspectives, you're manipulating things to do whatever your goal is. Then it just starts going to saying the story how you want to say it first, and then everyone thinks that's the main news. I mean, it eventually leads and gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I think it's it's probably better to not think of it in terms of a linear linear progression. I mean, as you said, like, you know, if we think of it in terms of history. So when newspapers first start coming out, you don't have the standards of journalism that we think of today. So there is a lot of, you know, um, William Randolph Hearst famously said in the Spanish-American War, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war, because he wanted to generate a, a war that he could then use to sell newspapers and other reasons. So it's not necessarily that we come from, there's never a moment in journalism where it's this idealized, it's all about the truth, and then it suddenly starts degrading. I don't think. I think what you do see is kind of waves of ideas of journalistic integrity, and that starts to develop. And then in Vietnam, as you rightly say, I think journalists and people covering that war start to think about a responsibility to report not just objectively, but also to imbue those moments with um, with meaning. And often that meaning is tied to an ideological perspective of the war, a perspective of this is wrong or this is right. But I think what we've got 
now, um, and you mentioned the 24-hour news cycle, and then, of course, we've got the rise of Fox News. And I'm sorry, but I am going to blame Fox News for a lot of this. You, with, with the way in which Fox sold its product news, um, we see that starting to influence other newscasters, not just in the States, but worldwide. Because suddenly you're now in a competitive arena where you're trying to to sell news as product. So we so academics do talk about what is called the Fox effect. The um, instead of reporting on news, suddenly commentating, creating news rather than reporting on it, it's so-called objectively. And we know that that's a loaded term. So. I think in the commodification of news as a product, we, we start to see a kind of a loss of responsibility for that product and for what it means and for what it can do. There are obviously still some newscasters that don't do that, but I, I can't remember if we spoke about this last time, but even things like slow motion in news and the use of emotive music, I remember first being shocked by that when I saw that on the coverage of I think it was the first Gulf War, because you don't, you never used to see slow motion in a news report ever, or the the, the use of emotive music. It just wouldn't be there. So this kind of thing starts creeping in until eventually we've got the situation we, we have now where nobody trusts anybody else, nobody trusts many media outlets. And you've got this kind of erosion of even the idea of objectivity and the idea of responsibility to the truth. Did you ever look at the reporting of what was going on in World War II? In what country? Um, I mean, you can give me which country you feel comfortable with. I mean, I would say the United States, just so I can try and find a sense of a little bit of what was might have been going on on this side of the thing. But if you have information on another country, I'm just curious if it, the decline of people's trust or allegiance to the government now it's kind of boiled into political parties, but even then it's a little bit of a disarray. But I, there was just a lot of like government, you go and take photos, the guys tell you you can't take photos and pass around our troops smoking weed and doing all this type of stuff. There are some photos, but there was a clear like, hey, don't do that. We can't send that back home. Then like that's the media was like, okay. And then like, you know, they had an acceptance to it, but that was also allegiance to like, you, you have things like Northwoods where they were going to have a f airliner blow up and blame it on the Cubans and have all the media be there to report it like it was a real story. It was a fake thing. Um, it was a false flag little thing that we know about during JFK's administration. But I was like, dang, to get the media to be in line with you guys faking a whole entire airplane uh, thing attack or reporting on an air airplane attack that never even happened is you guys have to have a good relationship. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're in cahoots or anything like that, which I think there's documents that prove that, but I'm just saying like, that's a real thing when you're reporting something to go ahead and give up your journalistic integrity because it saves your government. And today I don't see that's, that's a media that would not recognize the past media if the media today. Yeah. I mean, if, if I, World War II, again, if I'm, thinking of the states, the coverage of the war was a complex mixture of um, not certainly not government control, but a complex mixture of gov go government influence, the influence of various um, bodies, and actual patriotism on the part of the people who were sending stuff back to the states. But there was 
but you're right. A, a particular version of the war emerged from that 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 kind of coverage. A particular version that did not acknowledge, did not really show the devastation of that the war was causing in in many ways. Um, so the and it also didn't show, as you as you rightly point out, the, the kind of behavior of American troops that might have been less than um, exemplary. So the 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 liberation of Europe was a complex, messy, nasty process. To liberate a country is not easy, and it wasn't all about. American troops being welcomed with flowers and smiles, like you see in so many of the newsreels. Very often there were combative um, relationships between those countries and the allied forces. Um, many of them were in huge difficulties. There was starvation, there was all kinds of nastiness happening. Um, and of course, in this, this kind of weird liminal space that war is, where the rules have broken down, of course, there was loads of looting, raping, murdering, pillaging by the Allied forces as much as, as anything else. But that never makes it back into um, American media. And as I've, I, you know, that, as I've written elsewhere, that creates a sense that it is possible to wage a good war. That's the idea of, of World War II as a good war comes out of that. Because you just don't see the devastation that Europe sees as a result of liberation. Um, and someone called George Roda, if you're interested, has written a lot about what doesn't make it back. And it's not necessarily because of censorship. Sometimes it's also just people going, oh, no, we can't show that because that, 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 that's just not right. So it's a complex mix of... Um, kind of agreement on the part of the press to, they're much more in aligned with the American government at that stage than you would see in something like Vietnam, where it, there is that misalignment where journalists are saying that this war is, is, is not right, what we're seeing is not right. And you get that misalignment that you don't get in World War II, but that still makes it into American media. So it's not about, it's not about control. It's become more about control as time has gone on, I think. Yeah, um, I, I would say that it probably started in the beginning of when you release a photo that might be damning to the government. You got to think of who supports the government and their actions, and that's the people. They need the people's support. So you're just sticking it from a patriotism aspect. But then we get to what we have today, and a lot of media seems to be certain narratives and certain things are peeking through. And you can really only talk about things if you blame left or right, which makes it difficult because I don't know about the emergence of independent media sources. You know, I don't consider podcasting journalism. I don't consider anything like that. But it, 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 it's flooded the market so much now where it's really hard for people to get on the same page. And we're just constantly pulling differently from like, I feel like now if you bring up anything about a war that's going on, I don't know how many people tuned out of the war in Ukraine issue. Um, I, for me, it's been easier to talk about the past than it has been to talk about events that are happening right now. But I don't know, because I think now what we're seeing with media and all this is a distortion where the government's still doing things that probably we would object to, but I just don't think anybody wants to look closely at what's going on anymore. It's kind of like hear no evil, see no evil type 
And back then they were more about coercing you to like, hey, help us out because we're doing this. We're going against these communists. Now it's kind of like people are just like, I don't want to gas is five dollars. And then that, 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 <laughs> that's how that's how it goes. So I don't know if that's like I mean, it was a good strategy, a good shift in the tides. But I'm looking at so much of this type of stuff and exa- examining film. I have, I mean, for you. When you started out your what you were going to do academically and then what you're going to teach about, did you ever think American cinema was going to have these types of connections to it, that it was going to have so much depth compared to what you just see on screen? Because I've been surprised at what I've been able to get out of films now. I think – I mean, it, was, uh, it was either a good question or a bad question because you're really taking a breath on that one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking through. I'm thinking through what you meant. I think I have always been intrigued by the disproportionate reach that American media, not just cinema, but American media, has across the world. So, because it has that disproportionate reach, for me, it's important to consider what's going on in it. Um, that's what drew me to it in the, in the first place, I think, was just looking at how at how that disproportionate reach evolved. And weirdly, it is connected a lot to war. The, the entanglements between the way cinema evolved and the, the way other forms of media evolved, have evolved are all profoundly connected with conflict. So I, my interest was in that. So I, I think, I think I've always been interested in the big shouty stuff, the Call of Duties, the Saving Private Ryan's, the big moments in looking at why those happen and how they're understood, rather perhaps than the small art war films, which are no less valuable, but they just require a different kind of engagement. But my engagement has always been with the big shouty stuff. I don't know if it helps, but I'm a Star Wars fan, so Ooh. you get where the big shoutiness comes from. I like that, a Star Wars fan. I'm a Star Wars fan, too. I'm not a Star Trek guy. Um, but I do think, and this kind of relates to that, but do you think it's interesting that they kind of make depictions about future wars or stuff that's more futuristic? I wonder if that changes our perception of how we view space. I think everyone thought of like the Jetsons futuristic lifestyle type deal. And then with a number of war films that have come out that have taken place like in 2200 and we're in space or something like that. I start going, I wonder if people are really bringing up the question of if we do end up going to space and living up in space, having civilizations, would we have this cultural war? Would we have this type of problems that we suffer here on Earth compared to suffering up on a different planet or a different wherever we choose to inhabit, which I think is an interesting take on things because everyone loves that sci-fi stuff. Um, I do too, but like, it's been like a whole culture of it when it comes to really people have plans of like, if they land on, if they live on a different planet, what are they going to do? What's civil? And I'm just like, guys, we haven't even, you know, we're, we're out of this, we're out in space. Sure. But we're not making any uh, hotels there yet. There's talks, but I don't see anybody doing anything <laughs> good. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I the futuristic representations of warfare can be really interesting in terms of what it tells us about where we are or what we think war is going to be. But in terms of space, 
God, I hope we don't do that. I hope <laughs> we don't fight over territory the way we fight over territory here. But I don't hold up much hope for that not happening, unfortunately, because we have such a history of just, I mean, look at colonialism. That's just fighting for space and fighting for territory. And I, I think we'd do it, it in, was a, a, in the same way, unfortunately. It was a few years ago. Um, I, I think probably a year and a half ago, I had a space lawyer on. Yeah, that's a real job. Um, but uh, he was talking about a bunch of like the the space treaty he was going into everything like that. And he goes, yeah, I mean, at one, it was a couple of years ago, but China was trying to claim a certain part of the moon. And the United States was also having a problem with them claiming a certain part to it. And there's a, it, it becomes an ethical concern because you have countries that haven't even really landed out of our atmosphere yet. And if you start claiming territory, you're not giving anybody a fair shot considering how their technology is maybe a little bit behind. But back to the future war thing, robots. I hate to ask you that question, but when I get to it, I start going, I mean, a lot of seen video games even show more robotic technology and drones and machines that a lot more to the capacity Call of Duty is showing like cyber enhancements for people. Whether that's like people are like, okay, that's fantasy stuff, but it makes you wonder about the capacity of what our military can really start doing. Like, is this like stuff that they're working on or similarities? I mean, how does that impact someone's memory of what the battle is? I mean- yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount that's been written on this, the kind of way in which it's increasing. I mean, just drones, for example, of how that's created a kind of distance between targets. And Paul Virilio writes very evocatively about these kinds of ideas and wars of perception that, and the way in which this technology is intervening between us and, and killing, basically. Um, but I think there's some really scary stuff out there if we start thinking about drones and the way in which they might develop and just the intervention of artificial intelligence in the way in which we wage warfare i think is is really scary stuff and i think we need to stop thinking about going into space and just think about what we are doing to our own planet and how conflict the role that conflict has played in the crisis we're facing at the moment and the role that con conflict will continue to play and technology doesn't have the answer for that i don't think so i, I agree with that <laughs> i find it scary that we we are increasingly moving towards reliance on technology in terms of warfare i think it's scary i might feel better if my gps was giving me the news than like someone like <laughs> laura ingren whatever her name is um <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask this about World War II just because I'm interested in it when it comes to the 70s, but is there, was there a counterculture in World War II? Was there any type of underground press or anything that might have been happening earlier that you might know of, at least media reporting that might have been subjective to the official narrative? I don't – I wouldn't necessarily call it a counterculture. And I haven't done enough research into anti-war movements to com to to comment on this properly, but certainly the idea that all America was like woohoo, let's join World War II, um, that's not right. There was a, a there were the support for the war rose and fell as the war continued. And there were times when it waned and people were thinking, what the hell are we doing? Why are we fighting this war so far away from where we are? So there was, a, it certainly wasn't the case that everyone was like, let's go and save the world. Let's, let, let, let's, let's do this. 
So I don't necessarily think there was a counterculture, but there certainly were pacifist movements and people who did not want to see the US involved in another war. And certainly the same is true in Britain. But of course, you then you're in a situation in World War Two where you it's not really that much of a choice. You either have to pick up arms against reprehensible ideologies if you're in Europe or run the risk of being overrun by them. So, yeah, um, in the, I wouldn't say counterculture as such, but certainly support for the war wasn't unanimous and it wasn't in the States, wasn't unanimous and it wasn't consistent all the way through. That's been one of the most difficult things trying to understand about history is how much of things that I thought were or depicted to me when I was a kid and then learning kind of like the other side of that, like not finding out that not everyone was cared about the Vietnam War, didn't matter if we were in it or not. You know, before I thought it was like every single person was against the Vietnam War. I was like, no, not really. There wasn't that many people that were against it. I was like, oh, my goodness. What? And then, like, I don't know, it just changes. I'm wondering, do you get that reception with your students? When you kind of start talking about certain events, either whether World War II related or something like that, I know we kind of covered the the range here, but I'm curious if your students ever kind of, hey, but I thought this happened. And the next thing you know, you kind of tell them something differently. It's, I don't know when we pick up these little pieces of information, but I, through my life, I was gathering information a certain way. And then obviously I was found out through doing this, that a lot of things that I had learned might've been just little propaganda stuff, which is why I have such a big issue with it. Cause I'm like, damn, I was brainwashed for like the longest time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and it, it can be very individual. Like some students are really shocked to hear that the two atomic bombs weren't necessarily about, um, stopping Japan. They were much more about showcasing that technology, yeah, sending a message. Some students are really shocked about that. Other students are really shocked about other stuff. I mean, for me, I do you know the thing that's really striking me at the moment, and this is where my research is, is moving. I mean, I've researched war and media for a long time now. Um, and I didn't ever realize just how um damaging war was to the natural world i know that sounds insane but the more i dig this is something that's only becoming a, a, a topic of sustained academic interest in the last probably two decades but the damage that industrial warfare does to the environment to the natural world is something we don't talk about so and that that that's really blown me away because i'm thinking I'm so interested in erasures and things that we don't necessarily see and why some things are emphasized and others aren't. And I've never clocked this massive subject that is sitting underneath this. There's the way in which wars changed the world, the World War One and World War II changed the world and our relationship to our natural, uh, the natural resources. World War II, for example, destroyed the forests of the world. I mean, that's Look at Silicon Valley. That whole thing is built on top of like Superfund sites of industrial chemicals during the war efforts. Exactly right. Chemicals, the, the use of pesticides, all of that kind of stuff. All of that comes out of World War II. So there's always something, Robbie. There's always something, you know, and it's not just my students. It's also me where I go, holy shit, I never <laughs> knew this existed. Look at them, the number of bioweapon plants we had that just went, oh, we're done doing bioweapons now. I'm like, what do you do with the product? Well, 
we had to stop doing bioweapons because all the product was going bad. I was like, where did it go bad at? Where? How does it go bad? Did you destroy it? Did you burn it? Did you set a fire? I'm like, I got to know, but they don't ever tell you. They just kind of just like, hey, let's not talk about that. Let's move on to something else. I was like, yeah, I mean, the damage to our environment on the war efforts on things. And there's places you probably – Chernobyl is a good example. That's not even a war effort, but that's just a massive military – just nuclear meltdown incident that the land is now starting to come back a little bit, but there's been so much traumatic scars there from that whole, there's places you probably can't even touch still just because it's been bombed so many times, or it's just a testing facility or it's just, it's, it's a mess. And I think a lot of people really focus on obviously the human lives and stuff like that. But when you really examine the whole perspective and things that we're starting to learn about the environment, ones that definitely an issue I've heard raised by a couple of academics in the past. Yeah, that's encouraging. I mean, there's there's a really lovely concept by um, an academic called Nixon. I can't remember his first name. I'm embarrassed. Richard Nixon? Um, Richard Nixon. No, not Richard Nixon. Um, he talks about a concept called slow violence. And I think it's such a useful concept because he talks about how violence is not necessarily quick and fast. It's something that can continue over years and years and years. So, yeah, there are vast areas of, of France that are still, and Belgium, that are still unusable because of tox, the toxicity of ammunitions, et cetera, from World War One. There is, Pearl Harbor's for example, there, you know, there's the ships that were sunk during Pearl Harbor are leaking pollutants Oil. into- I went there and the saw harbor. it. It's the, Oil it's, and all kinds of stuff, yeah. It's crazy. I, it's just, it's insane. So we think, oh, the war's in the past. But actually, we are still feeling the consequences of those conflicts. And we really need to get our heads around this, because if we continue to wage war, we're just pushing our planet closer and closer towards destruction. And of course, the more we start to fight over resources, or the more resources diminish, the more we'll fight over them, the more damage we'll do. So it's a vicious circle that we really need to start to break. We really do. So yeah, a lot of there's been a lot of holy shit moments for me in in this research because so there is just stuff that i absolutely did not know i um and i look i appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show it's always fun having a conversation with you and also learning from your perspective as well so i appreciate your perspective and i know we didn't really have a set agenda of what we were going to talk about but i enjoyed it very much i always like learning about like i tell you learning about history to me has been the most fascinating thing once i really started diving into like the actual documentation on things and really kind of everyone's perspective on it you see a lot more than which i'm saying million dollars i can make a film just somebody just toss that out there that's all i'm saying but um i wish i had it robbie i'd give it to you <laughs> but, I, but i really do appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show and is there a place where people can find any of your links and i'll make sure i put them in the description as well okay well yeah i'm on the exeter website and all my work is on there so i don't have a separate um web page but yeah you can find me on exeter university's website Okay. And I'll link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. And thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for our next